This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm Edwina Throsby, and in today's episode, we offer a beacon of hope from Antidote 2018. At a session that embodied all the festival stands for, we challenged three great thinkers in their fields to come up with their ways to save the world. In this panel, environmentalist Jonathan Drory, designer Liz Jackson and economist Raj Patel discuss what's going on in the world right now, what we could be doing better and how to get started. They're joined by researcher Rebecca Huntley for a challenging yet productive look at how we can collectively work towards a better future. Jonathan Drory has had a long career at the BBC, Head of Digital Media and Learning Channels at BBC Education and as a BBC Director and Executive Producer responsible for a lot of national education campaigns and particular interest and passion in science. And he won many, many awards for documentaries which won not not only local awards but international awards. He's a visiting industrial professor at the Graduate School of Education at Bristol University He is a passionate environmentalist. He served on many boards, including the board of the Royal Botanical Gardens Kew, and his beautiful book, Around the World in 80 Trees, is available to be bought now after this session and signed. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Are you going to do us one by one? We are. We are. Can I introduce you all, and then I'll get you to come? Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, I mean... Really, you should be calling shots because you know what's happening. You're better than me. All right. Raj Patel, another award-winning writer, activist and academic. He's currently a research professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. He's got degrees from Oxford, LSE and Cornell University. He's worked for the World Bank and the WTO and protested against both of them across the world. I love that part of his CV. He writes for numerous newspapers and has written a number of best-selling books and he co-hosts the wonderful podcast, The Secret Ingredient. Welcome to Raj. And finally, Liz Jackson is the girl with the purple cane. She's a designer, writer and speaker and she's created The Disabled List to harness the intuitive creativity disabled people cultivate by navigating a world that isn't built for their bodies. She supports brands who are interested in reaching disabled customers and she advocates to shift the disability narrative and build pathways into design for disabled people. She's spoken at TED and at the White House. Which one? <laughs> the current one? I feel like one? you can take one look at me and know which no. one. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I just don't want to make any assumptions. There, there's no disabled people at the White All House right. right now. <laughs> that's right. Well, there's somebody that's got some problems that I would not normally <laughs> describe that like as... A disability. We, we, in, he's not in, one of us. No, no, no. He's not one of us. Are you us. trying to tell me Donald Trump is not interested in inclusive design? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Jonathan, Jonathan is asked to speak first, and I'll invite him to go to the podium. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Um, go get them. I don't know whose glasses these are, but they're not mine, unfortunately. <laughs> 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 so... <laughs> Um, uh, Eight minutes to save the world, I've got uh, recommendations to save the world. Make it fun, they said. Make it zany. (laughs) We're trying to save the world. Uh, hmm. So uh, I'm going to give you two or three in in, uh, three different categories. And I'm going to start with the frivolous. 
Um, uh, you know, some of the things I would do to make the world a better place. One would be to stop people wearing dark glasses on the London Underground, uh, which is particularly irritating to me. And um, uh, whenever I, s I found a way of stopping them, actually, which is just to say, can I help you? Uh, which is <laughs> terrific. Uh, I'd ban those little pots of fish paste with all the chemicals sort of written in spirals that scroll around the, around the top. Um, and I'd certainly ban all photographic cliches, uh, which means, unfortunately, that the whole of New Zealand will disappear, and Iceland. Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, we'd lose Sydney Harbour as well. Um, and finally, I would uh, prevent all those waiters coming to interrupt your meal, saying, is everything all right? Well, it was until you interrupted. But anyway. Um, and then there's the serious. Uh, so the, uh, the kind of serious stuff is, uh, you know, I would wave my magic fairy wand and ensure that uh, girls were educated in all developing countries. And uh, the reason for that is that, uh, you know, Girls' education is correlated with a whole lot of really good outcomes for societies, um, not least um, controlling population growth. So that would be my number one. Uh, another one that I would do is, uh, when, when the UK uh, slipped into recession in about 2009, 2010, by 1%, so in other words, our, our economy uh, sort of um, uh, shrunk by 1%, uh, there were whole northern cities that got kind of boarded up. Newcastle uh, was a sort of ghost town. Um, surely there is something wrong with this, right? Our society is geared towards continuous growth in consumption, and often that consumption is of actual stuff, and that can't go on. Um, it is clearly not sustainable. So the challenge is, how do you get our political parties and our representatives to um, migrate us towards a society uh, that is sustainable, that isn't based on continuous growth of companies that our pension schemes are linked to and all of that kind of thing, uh, and yet people feel fulfilled. So that is my second one. And the third one is to deal with what is called the tragedy of the commons. Uh, the tragedy of the commons is a sort of um, a, a, a phrase that is used by uh, economists and environmentalists to describe that thing that happens when the, the, there is a resource that everyone has but nobody owns and nobody has control over. So, for example, this is why the seas get overfished, because there's no one controlling exactly what happens in, in, in the oceans. Uh, and so everyone takes, and everyone tries to take faster than everyone else. In this country, um, the Jarrah forests of southwest Australia uh, were depleted completely by people who rushed in, European colonizers, uh, in order actually to take the Jarrowood out to pave the streets of London with. And the swankiest streets of, South, of, of uh, London, Piccadilly and whatnot, were paved with Jarrowood. But because everyone was out for themselves and it was unregulated and a resource that everyone could use, um, it got immediately depleted. And there are lots of examples of that. And it works the other way. There are things we put into the uh, commons uh, that are not good for everyone, and uh, not good for anyone necessarily, but uh, are not controlled. And the ex obvious example in my mind is carbon dioxide gas that is linked to all our lifestyles of consumption of energy. Um, and uh, we, we just chuck into the atmosphere and it's not sufficiently controlled or taxed. Um, uh, and uh, plastics and so on that we, we know about as well are the pollutants. So the, uh, the question is, can we find a way of... Um, migrating to a society where these things are controlled in some way, either through ownership or through sensible taxation. Now, if I was speaking to a group of Scandinavians, that would be a kind of no-brainer. Um, actually, in the UK, across the political parties, there is a sort of a pretty much an agreement over that. 
right? But in, uh, certainly in the United States, and from what I read in Australia, this has become politicized. So that, and I can understand why it's become politicized, because if you believe fervently in small government, or if you don't trust your government, right, then of course you will try and deny climate change because climate change implies that governments will have to do something. And if governments have to do something, that means regulation, and that's not what you like if you like small government. Right? So that's why it's become uh, politicized. Um, and then, so, so those are the sort of serious things. Um, and then uh, I would uh, add a few practical things. Um, so, you know, what can you do? So somewhere, everyone here is on the continuum between omnivore, pescatarian, vegetarian, and vegan, right? And all I ask is that you just nudge yourself slightly further towards the uh, vegetarian, vegan end. That doesn't mean you have to do the whole lot overnight, right? But, you know, maybe just cook a vegetarian meal once a week if you never do, or twice a week if you already do, and just move slightly down the, the, uh, the scale. The reason I don't say go vegetarian immediately is because nobody will, right? <laughs> That's not how I, you know, I, I, there are lots of things I should do, and it takes me time to get there. But just start on the road once a week. Second one is um, understand that uh, when it came to tobacco, um, most people were just sort of gullible and misguided for many decades, actually, about how bad it was for you. But there were some evil people who knew how bad it was and yet continued to peddle the drug, right? And uh, so it is with climate change. And what's happened with social media and the general proliferation of other traditional media is that instead of it being seen as a, as a scientific consensus where 99.995% of all working scientists believe that uh, climate change is human exacerbated and, and defi almost definitely human caused, but certainly, certainly, certainly human exacerbated, um, it's gone to people thinking, well, you could have it one way or the other, right? Because of the sort of noise out there. So um, uh, one of my feelings is that um, uh, social media and um, uh, the sort of social media companies uh, might actually be, start to be regulated like the, uh, the traditional media, because they are media companies, and that something needs to be done to um, uh, ensure scientific literacy uh, among the audience, if not the producers. Uh, third one is consume less. Consume less of everything. So you, you, you hear reduce, re, you, reuse, recycle, but reduce is the thing. So when you, um, uh, you know, whatever it is that you use, whatever the thing is you're going to buy, um, make it last 7% longer, lose seven, use 7% 7 less, and do that every year. So it's a little thing that you can do. Just, you know, your smartphone. Just wait another th few months before you replace it. Don't replace it when you thought you needed to. Your, uh, your cling film or saran wrap, you know, just use a saucer on top of the uh, plate instead of using it. And you'll get into the way of using less. And that means that society can gradually migrate towards using less stuff um, rather than it happening overnight and causing a revolution and people being out of work and all the rest of it. And my final thought, if I had to pick one thing, is that I would bring back national service. <laughs> uh, not military national service. Um, and I would uh, reinforce that with reserve duty. And what would people do in that time? Um, they would have communal gardening and horticulture, a significant component. And the advantage of that is that it is social, transformative, and gives a respect for nature. And communities um, uh, with excellent horticulture um, could be charged lower rates. Thank you.
goodness, that was quite a lot of things. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be uh, briefer. Um, uh, first of all, by, by beginning by recognizing uh, that we are on Jubugjali. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, and I, I want for us at the end of this, these few minutes just to have an idea about what we do with that. How do we address the debt that is owed in this settler country uh, or any of the other settler countries? I mean, I, I'm British and live in the United States, uh, and the US is another settler colony with some serious issues. Uh, and I, I want to suggest that those issues can be really big. I mean, they can feel debilitating and paralyzing. Uh, the big systemic changes we need to address climate change, to address, address injustice, uh, these are huge issues. And uh, can you just raise your hand if you've ever felt like, I'm just one person, what can I do? Just one person, what can I do? I, I mean, uh, the, uh, one of the ways, of course, that we are encouraged to answer that question uh, is uh, to, to shop smarter, you know, to, to go to um, you know, your, your local organic grocery and buy something that is shade-grown and fair trade and dolphin-friendly and tuna-friendly and child-friendly. And, uh, you know, and, and that's the way to go. I mean, you know, I, I buy fair trade coffee uh, because, because what's the alternative? You know, bastard coffee? No, I mean, we, we, you, you need to, 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 to do the right thing uh, in, in your consumption. But there are bigger things that we, are, that we are able to do that move us beyond consumption. And that's the hard part. And I, I want to share with you a, a couple of activist questions that can help us get beyond this idea of, I'm just one person, what can I do? What's the right thing to buy? What's the right thing to shop for? Uh, and this is a question that I was taught by uh, a friend who is an activist in Oakland, California. Um, his name's Bram Ahmadi. Uh, and he works with at-risk youth in uh, parts of Oakland where people are impoverished and where fresh food is very hard to come by. Um, and he's a food activist. And he's discovered that if you want people to talk about food and systemic change, the thing you have to do is not talk about food and systemic change. Uh, the question that you ask is this. He, he, he has, you know, the, the, the youth come in the room and they don't particularly want to be there, and he's like, all right, fine. Uh, tell me this, who do you love? And they're like, mm -hmm. uh, and he says, no, no, really, who, who, who do you love? Yeah, just, just for shits and giggles, do, who do you love? Just shout out the name of someone. <laughs> no, all of you shout out the name of someone, <laughs> and not just this tremendous man at the front. Go, no, but uh, thanks, Mum. All right. No, so, so um, the in general, when when these when you know when Brahm is, is sitting with, with these with these young people, they're like, oh, all right, fine. I love my grandma. Um, and then the, you know the follow up is, all right. Well, how's she doing? Oh, she's fine. Is she really fine? Well, I mean, obviously she's not really fine. You know, she's got. Diabetes. So what's, what, 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 what do you do with that? Well, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a pain because, you know, we have to take her three days a week to dialysis. And the buses never run on time. And then, you know, the, the welfare checks run out halfway through the month. And so, you know, we have to buy some chicken and she'll, she'll buy a chicken sandwich and eat half today and half tomorrow. And, uh, you know, the, and the, the housing, we can't afford to stay in Oakland now because Uber has come in and driven up all the prices and all this, these white people are coming in with all their money and now we're, 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 we're shit out of luck. And from a question about love, you start a discussion about welfare reform and transportation improvement 
and better access to food systems, and uh, what social security should look like, and how it is that you uh, avoid gentrification. And that question of love not only gets you thinking systemically, this isn't a question about, oh, shall we have an organic garden? This is a question about root and branch change, and it's fueled by that, that, that rocket fuel of love that allows you to tackle these very difficult uh, systemic changes uh, uh, multiply. And you can do that by organizing, as Brahm has done uh, in, uh, in West Oakland. Uh, and now he's convened uh, a space where people can actually meet. And it's, a, it's, a, it's something called the People's Community Market. It's a grocery store, but it's, a, it's an organization also for social change. But you get that by asking the question, who do you love, and taking the answer very seriously. Now, I think that if, if we're interested in saving the world, that question is tremendously important. The trouble is, um, it's not a, a question that comes with any political answers. Um, you know, authoritarians love people as well. There's, there's a man in the White House who loves his daughter, possibly a little too much. Um, <laughs> uh, but the question, who do you love, uh, is not sufficient to get us to a, a transformative politics. Because uh, we also need to ask a second question. What do we owe? And that's what differentiates a, a, a sort of conservative politics from a radical one. Uh, the question of debt, of how is it that we got to be here? How is it that our economy is overladen with uh, the products of fossil fuel and colonialism and exploitation and sexism? Uh, how is it that we take that on? That's the work of, what, of, of social movements. Um, and so uh, one way of getting to the answer of, you know, I'm getting beyond the question of just, I'm just one person, what can I do? is to unask that question and to recognize you're not just one person. You've never been just one person. You're also the product of a great deal of history, none of which is necessarily your fault. You know, I, 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 I am the product of patriarchy. Uh, I don't particularly, I'm not particularly happy with that. And I'm, you know, for the rest of my life, I will flay it out of myself. Uh, but, uh, and I will, I, I will do the best to create a world in which my children uh, are not raised in patriarchy and are taught to call it when they see it. But that means organizing. And that means recognizing that we're not just one person. We are uh, and can be part of radical movements for change. Uh, and those movements are right here among us. Um, and if we listen to the movements of indigenous people, if we listen to the movements of peasants, if we listen to the movements uh, of uh, fighting for social justice, we will find allies and co-conspirators uh, in a project that lets us lift beyond the individualized question of I'm just one person, what can we do? and gets us to the much better question of when can we start? That's all. Thanks very much. Hi. Uh, so I want to uh, apologize in advance for um, reading. Um, I scrapped my remarks, and I decided to go a little bit of a different route after I discovered something um, yesterday. So out in the foyer right now, is an exhibit called Plastic Islands. A visual artist is taking 15,000 unused straws and is turning it into art to celebrate the Sydney Opera House's decision to ban plastic straws. To say it makes no sense to use 15,000 perfectly good straws to send a message about the wastefulness of straws would be a gross understatement. <laughs> but then again, there's nothing about the straw ban that makes any sense to me. You may recognize this particular brand of straw. I actually um, walked into a Starbucks and took it en route to another coffee shop this morning. Um, this straw is a global technology. It transports liquids from one vessel to another through the simple act of sucking. And you may not realize it, but this straw 
saves millions of lives every single year. Do you know what happened to so many disabled people before the invention of the straw? It's actually a short story. They died. And now straws are being taken away. Not because they're costly, and despite what you think, it's also not because they're wasteful. It's because of a tortoise. A beautiful, glorious tortoise that somehow got straw stuck up its nose. I remember how horrified I was when I saw that image of the tortoise a few years back. And do you know what happened? Sustainability organizations galvanized around this image, creating a moral panic that is completely divorced from reality. It has caused cities and states and businesses and institutions all over the world to ban straws. Only nobody thought some people might need these. And somehow the people that need these straws have become wasteful tortoise haters. Just so we're clear, banning straws is not a fix. Banning straws is a lie. Banning straws tells citizens that we can change the world from eliminating plastic from our lives. Straws make up less than 0.03% of ocean plastic. Our power comes not from these insignificant sacrifices, but by demanding that corporations make comprehensive changes. Starbucks was the first corporation to sign on to the straw ban. They will eliminate plastic straws from their stores by 2020. Question for you. Have you ever seen a recycling bin in a Starbucks? Do you really think they care? Starbucks will be replacing straws and lids with a sippy top, which incidentally uses more plastic than the current straw-lid combination. Starbucks says it's okay because the lids are made of compostable plastic, but unless you're composting that plastic, it ends up in the landfill. A few facts about compostable plastic. First, it falls apart in hot water. Second, compostable plastic is made of one of the world's largest allergens, corn. The straw ban is deadly. Compostable straws are not the only dangerous straw. Metal straws are dangerous, especially when you have a tremor like I do. So are glass straws. Imagine choking on a piece of glass. And paper straws don't last more than a few sips. There's a reason straws are made of plastic. People keep asking disabled people to carry around reusable straws. Why are those with the least being asked to sacrifice the most? Recently, a company called Final Straw tried to capitalize on the straw ban by selling the, first world, the world's first collapsible reusable straw. But when they weren't able to fill orders fast enough, bootleggers stepped in, which led to this amusing quote from the founder of Final Straw. The whole purpose was to reduce waste, but this wave of bootleg straws has inadvertently created a bigger waste problem. Oops. People oftentimes say disabled people have special needs. I never understood what made a need special until the straw ban. Some of my disabled friends have already been shamed for requesting a straw. I asked the Sydney Opera House to consider how this conversation plays out. Now when somebody says, I need a straw, they don't receive a straw. They are instead proudly told that straws are banned. People are now required to defend and explain their need for a straw. My friends' needs were never special before. Nothing about my friends have changed, and yet somehow their needs have become special. How long until my straw-sucking friends need a doctor's note? Disney World, one of the world's most accessible theme parks in the world, announced they were banning straws the same week that they announced a partnership with Ziploc bags, which will be used to keep phones dry on water, lies, water rides. This is not about sustainability. Starbucks said they decided to ban straws because they can't be recycled. Apparently, straws are so thin, they fall through the cracks of sorting machines and recycling plants and wind up in the landfill. Why doesn't Starbucks fit, fit, fix the cracks? This is not a consumption issue, it is a disposal issue. 
I wish the sustainability movement would listen to dis disabled people and discover we are not the problem, we are the solution. We want to live on a healthy planet as much as the next person. We recognize the real problem, and we are shouting as loud as we can, please hold the corporations responsible. If it were up to us, we would shift this global movement from one that asks underprivileged people to sacrifice to a movement that holds corporations, such as Starbucks, accountable. Why won't anybody listen to us? And so I speak not only at the Sydney Opera House, but to the Sydney Opera House. Whose world are you changing? Thank you. Wow, okay, we've got um, about 15 minutes of facilitated conversation and I promised my speakers that I would think about ways to pose questions that all of them could answer based on what they talked about today. Um, my first question I have to ask you all, and this is very much based on when I do research with people and we think about the kind of world that we'd like to live in and how we can get involved in it. Um, a lot of people say, look, I just don't have time to save the world right now. How would you each respond to that? I don't have time to save the world. Jonathan. Um, hmm. uh, well, I think I gave a hint at it earlier on that there are, uh, you know, the, the most important thing is to sort of get on the, um, to start the journey. So most of us are on some sort of uh, you know, continuum between, you know, either, as I said, omnivore and vegan, or you're on the continuum between uh, owning a fleet of gas-guzzling monster vehicles <laughs> and uh, walking or cycling. Um, uh, you know, there, there, are, there, is, there is a direction that you can go with almost every aspect of your life. And if you tell people they've got to suddenly do a particular thing and it's all or nothing, then, uh, you know, we, we just know from trying to market things to people that that's mm -hmm. not how we are. Uh, you need to have, a f you know, some practical things that you can do. Um, one of the things I found, I, I, I'm a trustee of something in the UK called the Woodland Trust, uh, which sort of plants, protects, lobbies for trees and woodlands. Big, big organisation, actually. And, uh, you know, we found that uh, asking people for, you know, big donations and to become a member um, is fine for some people, but most people just want to be able to kind of give us about, you know, $5 and feel good about themselves for a bit. And what we do is we use that $5. The $5 is neither here nor there, um, except, you know, if you get hundreds of thousands of people to mm. give you. But what it does is it, um, we, we tell them, as, as you were saying, Raj, that, you know, by doing this, you're gaining a voice. You're becoming part of something. And so, uh, you know, for, on all these different axes, whether it's about consumption or changing the way society works, I think the trick is to uh, just be able to give people very, very small steps um, that they can, uh, they, they can feel they're contributing. And, and this is what, uh, you know, people who market online apps and video games and, you know, all the other things do extremely well. You know, you can start playing a, a, a video game um, before, you know, without having to read the bloody manual. <laughs> you know, you, you, can, it, you can just take that little step and you gradually learn and gradually learn and gradually improve. And that, that on, on every aspect of the things that will make the world a better place, just start out on the journey. Hmm. I mean, Raj, capitalism is very good at helping us fill up our time with stuff. <laughs> um, long commutes to and from jobs and oh, I've got to work harder to get the 
the house that I can't afford and, and, you know, send the kids to private school and so forth. I mean, how do you break that cycle? I mean, people are genuinely busy, they're genuinely stressed. How do you break that cycle to say that saving the world doesn't take a huge amount of time? Um, well, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly, you're, you're right. Ca capitalism does yeah. encourage us to consume uh, and carry on consuming. Yeah. What, the opposite of consumption, though, um, isn't not consuming. It's generosity. Uh, so the op opposite of consumption isn't thrift. It's generosity. It's giving. Uh, and one of the ways that uh, <clears throat> some activists I respect um, in the slow food movement um, uh, got their heads around this and, and started to re recruit and build a movement um, was uh, using pleasure. Because pleasure, nothing recruits people <laughs> to social change than fun. Uh, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Britain, you know, in, in the, the, the left uh, sort of scene in the 1980s and 90s where if you were having fun, you were doing it wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but if you're interested in social change, you can't leave pleasure on the side. Um, and so it, to, to people who are f faced with the idea of, oh, I just don't have time, um, one, of the, one of the ways that um, a movement I respect, for example, in Detroit uh, gets people to, to create the time is just to invite neighbors around uh, for, for a meal uh, with an organization called Cook, Eat, Talk, um, <laughs> where uh, it, it's, you know, it, as it says on the label, it's, you, people come over, you cook, you eat, um, you, you, you share a meal, and then you talk about what it is that you would like to change in your yeah. neighborhood. Um, and that local politics is, is, is about flavor, it's about um, joy, it's, it's about sensuality, but it's mm. also about um, how it is that we convene to be able to make these uh, bigger changes. Yeah, it's true. We don't think about changing the world as being a joyful or pleasurable experience. And to go to Liz, we don't necessarily think about it as, a, as an experience about beauty and the, crea the creation of beauty. I mean, you write a lot about the importance of the creation of beauty. Yeah, I think um, so often when people think of the brand of disability, they think that aesthetic is very much removed from it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's not been sort of, of my experience of disability. Uh, one of the things that I actually advocate for oftentimes is choice, um, saying th things don't need to be just specifically one way. Um, I found my way into disability advocacy because when I got out of the hospital after waking up to a neuromuscular condition uh, back in 2012, um, I needed eyeglasses and a cane. And for me, the question was, why do I have so much choice with my eyeglasses when I don't with my cane? And, and so it's this that I've really been trying to resolve, which is not necessarily um, a reduction of beauty, but a reduction of choice. Mm -hmm. um, and it, because it's only through choice that we can find things that are beautiful yeah. for us. And is, I mean, one of the, you spoke so eloquently about this kind of, I mean, many of us would think kind of good impulse, let's get rid of the straws and save the, save the turtles. But part of that is about this kind of reduction of choice. Yeah, I think, and this sort of goes back to your initial question, which is, so how do you take on, um, how do you start changing the world? Mm -hmm. And for me, the, the thing that I see is that um, across the board, I, wor I work with disabled people who very much are trying to change you know, our worlds. Um, and so the thing I say to brands when I'm working with them is use your resources to elevate our voices. And so mm -hmm. if there's not something specific that you know to do, um, just uh, tell a friend about somebody interesting that you've learned about. Um, you know, try and help get that person that's trying to do a specific thing out into the world. Um, so I think that would be my sort of... One of the other things I get a lot of my research is, is you can see it, the extent to which when you start to get people to contemplate just the challenges that we have, and not just in climate change but everywhere else, the complexity of the issue, the scale of it, you can see people just push it away. They get so incredibly depressed. There's a kind of 
vertigo that happens, which is, oh, that's just too much, and so they retreat in. I'm interested to get all three of you to, respect, to reflect on how do you manage that process of how do you not fall into um, some kind of form of depression and fatalism when you consider <laughs> the challenges of changing the world, even some part of it? Well, you could just sort of slide into a blue funk, couldn't you? Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll just do that. I'm British. I, 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 I live in that mode. It's what we're born with, what we're confident with. Um, uh, you know, if you think about the things that um, actually make you happy in life uh, and think about the things that are reinforcing that feeling of vertigo, I think mm. you said, you know, mm. but the, the sort of uh, depression, uh, then, you know, clearly you need to do more of the first and less of the second, right? Mm. So... Um, uh, one of the things I've noticed, and uh, you know, and that's borne out by sort of real research, um, is that people feel, uh, you know, that the constant bombardment through social media, which have become, uh, you know, and the sort of availability of news everywhere and so on, which has become um, sort of ubiquitous and iniquitous, I think, um, is something that is, is, a, is a, point, a point in their life which both makes them happy when they're, um, you know connecting with friends, but very unhappy when um, they're, they're hearing about the world constantly and being, you know, having certain messages reinforced. Um, without sticking your head in the ground, I would just say, you know, why not just disconnect yourself for um, a day a week? Mm. Um, again, you know, I'm not saying disconnect yourself completely, but, you know, why not just ration it a bit? You know, there are these phones you can get. I'll just show you one. Do you remember those? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, a couple of days a week, you know, that's what I use. And the rest of the time, it actually doesn't work at all in this country. <laughs> um, but, the, the, you know, and the rest of the time I'm connected and that's fine. But, you know, it just means that I have a, a sort of connection with a life that is unconnected uh, or, or less connected than otherwise was. And the, it means the media I consume are the media that you pay for, right? Uh, which are the newspaper or the... Um, uh, the, the news channels that I respect. And if I'm paying for them, I know that there's at least going to be decent journalism. If, so, if no one's paying for those, for those sources of news, you think, well, who is paying for it? Mm. And, and if it's paid through advertising or sponsorship, then We're they're trying to get me to do something. We're paying for it in a different something. way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, then on the other side, you know, what are the things that make you happy? And if I think about the moments when I've been absolutely, absolutely happiest, um, it's all about people. Mm. It's not actually about the consumption. Mm. And, you know, my, my wedding, uh, in so many ways, was a disaster. <laughs> um, uh, because, but, but the things that actually mattered, the people, were all brilliant. And I, fortunately, I married the right person as well. But, the, but, you know, it didn't matter that, you know, all the stuff that comes with weddings, either we couldn't afford or didn't turn up, or, mm. or any of it. Mm. What mattered was the people. Mm. And so, you know, on a small scale, just do the, do the little thing. You know, like, have, have dinner for six families in your street that you've never met before. Just knock on the door and say, look, I know this is a bit creepy, but, you know, we're just kind of <laughs> trying to get the neighbours. Just get to yeah. know the neighbours. Yeah. And just sort of create a little bit yeah. of community. Yeah. And then before you know it, you'll be borrowing a pair of pliers off each other yeah. or a drill. Not to pull a limb off or anything, but, yeah, just yeah. pull up pliers, yeah. those kinds of things. Right, I mean, you've travelled the world and talked to all kinds of people who perhaps are the challenges that face them in their community are almost inconceivable to the people in this room. Have you learnt anything about the ability to remain optimistic and resilient um, from them? I, I mean, I, I've learned that the way that we 
unconsciously make our world small um, are a luxury. So what I mean by that is, uh, for example, in uh, I'll be talking about this a little later on today, but in Malawi, there's a group of farmers who uh, recognized that in order to end hunger, they needed to end patriarchy. Um, and so they did. They, they, they ran a series of experiments to be able to figure out what the best way to do that was, and then they did it. Um, and so when I hear, well, you know, climate change is such a big problem and, you know, patriarchy, you know, wh wh when's that going to end? Uh, and, you know, how are we going to how are we going to tackle tackle white supremacy? Um, th these are these are big problems, of course. Um, but when people are need to, to solve them in order to, to be able to survive, um, they can the, 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 the ways that, that get invented through that sort of scientific engagement are mind blowing. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think that the, uh, you know, the, the, the project I'm working on at the moment is, is one where some of these uh, these activists from Malawi came to the United States to school Americans on patriarchy and on climate change. Mm. And it worked. Mm. Uh, and so I, I think that, that on, on what scale did that work? Um, it, it, well, the, I mean, it, it worked with the, the, the Trump supporters that they met um, wow. and the climate change skeptics that they met. Um, and, and it worked by not you know, uh, repeating the tropes that, that mm. um, the, the audience was expecting. So mm. the Malawian activists didn't come in mouthing off Democrat talking points. Instead, they talked about faith and they talked about the planet and they talked about love. Uh, and I think that, that that's why this but, idea of love yeah. gets us to uh, yeah. a, a different mode of activism yeah. than, than normally we activate. Liz, what about you? I mean, when you think about the, you know, we were talking in the green room before that for so many people remaking our world to make it more, um, you know, to make it a place that isn't just about how able your body is, for people think, oh, I've just got to build a better wheelchair ramp and then everything's fine. I mean, how do you, when you think about the challenges um, that you deal with in your work, how do you not get depressed? <laughs> um, well, I think I think for me, what it comes down to is this finding purpose in in the fight. Um, and it's you know I, I sort of I work in these these two different directions. So I work in the direction where I um, I'm communicating to a community that fully understands and relates to uh, the work I'm doing. It's the very work that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And then I, I communicate out in the mainstream where a lot of my uh, ideas, a lot of the disability community's ideas, are are an epiphany to people. And so. Um, it's nice to sort of have that balance to be both fully understood and to, to be a, a new and, and fresh voice um, in a lot of um, conversations. I, I think one of, the, one of the things we talked about in the green room, and I think one of the things I think is that disabled people have um, an immense power to speak to um, multiple sort of different issues that we wouldn't think would be relatable. And, and we were talking in the, the green room about how I struggle with accessibility. Um, clearly, I... I like accessibility, um, but I, I find that it, it breeds compliance and it becomes this thing that you have to do. And I think that very much relates to sort of a global world-changing conversation because how do we find creativity um, and, and really think in new ways about things that we sort of feel obligated and have to do? Um, and, and how can we find beauty in that and, mm -hmm. and, um, and grow culturally? Yeah, great. Um, I had a few other questions here. I mean, I was particularly interested in Raj's idea of bastard coffee. So it's a very good, <laughs> was a particularly good brand idea for anybody who really wants to embrace capitalism in their marketing. Um, particularly bitter. Particularly bitter. Um, yeah, no, they're called, you could have asshole milk and total, 
motherfucker butter. I thought as well. <laughs> it was to be a good one, so... You Australians. <laughs> Get out of here. They said I needed to make it light and funny, and that's that all I've been able to do but so But you do far. by swearing. Yeah. yeah. Go on. Do you think that's swearing? <laughs> oh, no, go on. Go on. Wow, me. you need to stay around for a couple more weeks. I, actually, I have a really good... Oh. All right, now we have an opportunity for, again, for the audience to ask some um, direct questions, either a question open to all um, three participants or directed to one in particular. I might ask for the house lights to um, come up. And as we're going there, there's a microphone there, number one, number two, and a nice pithy question, please. Let's Hi. go first to number two. Hi. Um, all of you alluded to this, but I was wondering about the effectiveness of um, pressuring commercial organisations or smaller organisations rather than government to change things, because I find that's more effective. For example, um, when certain commentators on certain channels said certain things about certain people, uh, <laughs> we, we pressured the, the advertisers on those channels, and that's how change gets affected. So I was wondering about you know, yeah. Disneyland, Opera House. So just to contextualise that, I think I know where you're coming from for the audience. We've had, um, you know, numerous, often right-wing commentators say appalling things on radio and then the way, because there's almost a sense that we can't get rid of these people because they say it so often, <laughs> people will then pressure the advertisers to remove their advertising from their show. It hasn't, it's not always, it's not, not yet been effective with one particular individual who called our current Prime Minister, I think, what was a nigger in the woodpile, that's what he called him. So we've had a few um, people remove, uh, yeah, people, We've had a few advertisers remove their advertising for him, but also said, you know, misogynistic, racist things in the past. So, any any response from people on the audience well, you, about... You've answered the, the question. Yes, it is effective. Yeah, <laughs> and, and how I mean, effective can it be? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's effective in some countries more than others because of, uh, you know, who owns the media and who owns... Um, you know, how sensitive they are to advertising. But, you know, there's a whole palette of tools that you can use, and that's clearly one of them that you should use. I would say. But how, I mean, I suppose I'm interested, in all of you, about how effective are things like corporate responsibility frames or all of our activist attention being focused on corporations to do the right thing, whatever that might be. I can answer that. Yeah. So in my work, I, I purposely don't use words like diversity and inclusion and sustain or uh, intersectionality or some of, some of these kind of greater ideas. Um, and it's, I think it's a few different reasons. One is, is because um, for so long, disabled people have been excluded from the conversation. But I, I work with these um, disability design theorists out of the University of Maine. Um, and what they did is they've, they've tracked the meaning of a lot of these words that come out of so, uh, CSR departments, um, one of them being diversity. And what they found was is that in the 1913 Webster's Dictionary, there was a, a one-word definition of, of diversity, and it meant uh, variety. And it's interesting to look at the word now and how it's become politicized and used, you know, both to push corporations but also used by corporations to mean something completely different. Mm. And what that means is it, now diversity means of, not the majority. And so it no longer is a, a phrase with um, a specific meaning and now it's a phrase that is, uh, has been sort of adapted to respond to, to something else. Mm. And so um, I, I struggle with a lot of these things. Yes, I think that diversity is of the utmost of importance, but the way we're going about it, I think it's because I have an outsider's perspective, all disabled people do, I think we have um, 
a different view of, of how to approach it. Mm -hmm. and, and also because we struggle with compliance, right? Like, um, we don't want to sort of further force uh, people to be, you know, forced to look our way. Mm -hmm. Ross, do you have anything to well, add? I mean, I, to next I, I mean, I think generally uh, the idea of corporate social responsibility is horseshit. Um, and that's because if you're thinking about, uh, you know, this is not to say there, there are not some important wins that can be gotten, like, for, for example, you know, booting the, 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 the least savory of the, um, the right wing nut. <laughs> bag yeah. off, the, uh, you yeah. know, off the air. But, I mean, if we're thinking just, uh, moving away perhaps from the media and just thinking in general about corporate social responsibility, um, there are things that, that corporations will do that are profitable and possibly good for the environment, like you know, Walmart reducing its carbon footprint because it, you know, it, it switched to more efficient uh, vehicles. It's a huge company, and because they used less fuel, there was less CO2 emitted into the world. So, you know, win for, for uh, the environment and win for... Uh, for, for Walmart because their fuel bill went down. But, uh, and, and that's an example of corporate social responsibility. Uh, but for me, the, the big wins are not in the good for the environment, good for the corporation quadrant. Um, they're probably going to be bad for the corporation, good for the environment quadrant. That's where the big wins are. Uh, because when corporations stop um, you know, uh, uh, using fossil fuels, um, when corporations stop um, exploiting labor, uh, when corporations stop depending on cheap reproductive labor for, for, uh, for, for, the, for the propagation of, of new workers. That um, is where the, the, big, the big wins are to be found. But no, there's no money in that. Um, and so I think that th there are important tactical uh, victories to be won in mm. pushing back against corporations and, and things we can win uh, using brand reputation as a way of, uh, you know, just d doing the jujitsu of like, you think your brand is so unsullied, but look at this wanker who you, you funnel money to. <laughs> um, but in the end, uh, the, the big wins have to be about moving away from these corporations. So I, I'm, you know, I, I, and I see these corporations move like the Titanic, you know, these huge just sort of juggernauts. And so you, we can move them very slowly through uh, long and, and really hard activism but in the end um, we we need to be moving away from these you know from these behemoths in the first place mm. so I, I think you know it's a balance take them on but take them down thank you Crash. over to number one hi um, this is for all three of you so it touches upon Rebecca's earlier question about falling into a pit of despair <laughs> when that was a good way, that's a good way of putting it yeah, yeah um, and I find that sometimes when I think about the issues that you all alluded to it's if it's not despair, I've fully ascended into blinding rage at the injustices in the world. And I find that sometimes when I essentially try to get other people to care, and especially in, my, in relation to my own experience as a woman from a colonized country, um, it becomes hard because I'm essentially, I essentially end up yelling or typing in all caps in extreme <laughs> anger. Um, and while that's great for people who already agree with me, it's very difficult to essentially bring other people, those yeah. who don't necessarily agree with me, onto my side. Yeah. Yeah. And I was wondering how the three of you navigate the, the urge to either, the urge between despair and rage, and find that happy medium to essentially convince people that the problems yeah. of the world are important and need to be addressed. A great, a great question about what to do with rage, because rage can be productive. Anger can be productive. Um, I think you, um, uh, what you might do is, I mean, I recognise the problem, um, is uh, sort of try to channel it a bit. So uh, there are, you know, the first thing to do is not be alone. Um, and so you need to find fellow travellers 
And you can either find that among your friends, but maybe they're not fellow travelers yet. They're just sort of seeing you shouting. <laughs> um, but there are lots of organizations that you could probably be part of. Um, and you, know, you pick, the thing that, pick the cause that you're sort of passionate about or most passionate about. It might be to do with societal things. It might be to do with accessibility, or it might be to do with environment, or something completely different. But that is going to take things. If, they, if that organization was successful, then it would take the world in the way that you want it to go. And uh, you know, uh, either join up or become a volunteer or, uh, or, or at least talk to some people from that organization. That You can usually find their details pretty easily. And then um, you, know, you might find that you give uh, you know, a couple of hours a week or something, and you, you meet up with people. Now, they will have techniques um, that they've used to channel their rage to persuade people. And some of that might be to do with fundraising so that they can get the message out better, or it might be a whole load of other things. Um, so I, I would say that's a practical way of, com of coming at it. Uh, but don't be alone. That's the main mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Raj, you agree? Uh, absolutely. I think de definitely don't, don't be alone. And all caps is a bad thing. I mean, in, in general, uh, social media you know, will, makes money off us going off on one uh, while, while we're on social media. Uh, playing, you know, giving more money to the Zuckerbergs doesn't seem to be the way that, that we, we should solve this problem. But um, th th there's, uh, there's an emotion that I think we need to cultivate in ourselves, and you know, I, 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 I struggle with this, but I, I, I need to, um, which, uh, which I've done a little bit in my work in the past, which is curiosity. Like, if, if, if something pisses you off, like, I was pissed off by the World Bank, how could these people do this? So I went to work there to find out. Um, and and I, I volunteered at the, the World Trade, I was, I was an intern at the WTO in order to find out, well, quite, how is it that they do these, this fucked up shit and, 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 they're, and they're okay with it? Uh, and it was very interesting because actually you, you, you develop your sense of compassion and understanding and you're able to point out what the systemic issues are through curiosity. I, I think rage is important and, and it, it is, as you say, a, a certain kind of rocket fuel for, for change. But I think curiosity is important as well. I mean, you know, am I curious about white supremacy? Well, kind of yes, but not really. Uh, but, but, but I mean, I see it and I, I wonder why it is that it persists. Um, and I, you know, I engage with racists uh, and I, I try and understand more about how it is that their, their, their views can, and, uh, you know, can be changed. Um, and again, so some, of the, some of the work, in, the Malawi work being translated to the US is, is part of that. But really it's about curiosity and asking why questions that, that, that can also get you uh, from, from the, to turn that rage into something productive. Yeah. Liz. Um, so I was recently asked to give an inspirational quote and I don't really do inspiration. So the thing that I said was, <laughs> um, every single one of my greatest successes has been a fuck you to somebody I res respect, admire, and wish would include me. <laughs> it's, it's the thing that drives me. Um, yeah. I, hope I love a good fuck you. Um, and so I remember last, uh, right before I came to Sydney, I was in San Francisco, and I'd spent a month preparing for this 45-minute this talk. And the, the through line of the whole talk was me making fun of this particular brand. And I mean, it's hilarious. Um, but like two hours before I went on stage, I made the mistake of going through the conference app and seeing who was in the audience. <laughs> and what I saw was that there were six lead designers from that company. <laughs> So I, I called my mom and I was like, mom, I'm like, I can't do this. And she's like, you have to. Um, she's like, listen to meditation music. I was like, I don't like meditation music. <laughs> and so I like Google something on my phone. I'm like laying on my bed, like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do it. But I went out and I did it and I got the laughs that I wanted. Um, and ultimately after, afterward, the, the people from the brand came up to me and they basically said touche. Um, and they asked me to come and, and speak with the company. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's painful, right? Like it, 
it's not easy to get up on this stage. You know, at Sydney Opera House, they, they flew me out here. They've been completely accommodating to get up on the stage and, and, and push back. But I wouldn't have fought for a voice. I wouldn't have used all caps on Twitter for, you know, six years to not use all caps from in front of a microphone, right? And so, um, and so for you, I would just say, you know, embrace it and um, keep it about the thing, not about the person. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thanks for a great question. Um, we've got three minutes, so I'm going to ask for one very short question from number two. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. The man in the black hat. <laughs> it's a very kind thing to do. Very quick question. Oh. <laughs> what did she say? This is <laughs> Sorry, we double teamed. <laughs> no. Yeah. I just want to say thank you to all three speakers because I think I'll have things to think about, you know, for weeks to come, especially Liz. Thank you. Some really thank new you. insights for me. Um, talking to, or I'm, I'm really asking Raj and Jonathan whether I've understood correctly that some of the things you've talked about have been about a slow change. You know, it's, it's slow food, slow getting to know your neighbours, slow um, joining organisations. Could you tell us a bit more, Raj, about how the Malawi farmers change things so quickly? Um, come to the talk this afternoon. But, but I mean, but basically, it's, it's. Oh, uh, sorry, right? That, um, so uh, you it, can it, come to mine instead. <laughs> It, the, the short of it is, uh, first of all, it, it, there's an, it, it begins with uh, using joy and pleasure um, to, to make it possible for women and men to be equal. Uh, and then there's hard feminist organizing, um, and that means building women's power uh, in, in the village. And men come to recognize that, and then men peer mentor their, you know, their, their, their comrades so that they, they recognize what the new normal is. Um, and it's just a little bit of radical change every day for four years. Uh, and four years feels like an eternity, but then again, to end patriarchy, that's not bad. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's so, like uh, a... It's a presidential term. <laughs> <laughs> it's a There's presidential hope. term. There's hope. It, it doesn't have to be slow. Uh, it just has to be slow enough for each particular audience that you're trying to get to. What media companies do very well uh, better than anyone else, really, other than retailers, is segment audiences. So they know who they're aiming for and what they can expect them to do and the pace that they can be led at. I mean, when I mentioned that, you know, take six people for, for lunch thing, um, uh, I, I work with the Eden Project uh, as a trustee, in, uh, in, in, which is in Cornwall in southwest England. And we persuaded seven million people last year to have lunch together on one particular day, and it's called wow. the Big Lunch. And we're now doing a Commonwealth Big Lunch, uh, wow. colonial thing, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that can pull communities together, where there are so many forces trying to pull us apart. Yeah. Um, but you can do it quite quickly if you yeah. get the right story. That's a wonderful thing. Do they all have to eat British food, though? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Great. Um, British food is just everyone's food. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're almost done. I want to thank our wonderful interpreters, our Aussie interpreters. <laughs> I'm going to... What is the sign for motherfucker? Great. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> all together now. <laughs> Um, I want you, before I want you to thank our, our guests, I want you to know that they'll um, certainly, Raj and Jonathan will be, you don't have a book, do you, Liz? I'll sign Raj's. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they'll both be signing books after this. Please join them on Twitter. Please follow their extraordinary careers and please thank them for this morning. Good.
That was Rebecca Huntley with Raj Patel, Jonathan Drury and Liz Jackson. Their solo talks from Antidote will be coming up on the podcast in a couple of weeks, so stay tuned. In the meantime, you can watch other videos from the festival on YouTube. Grab the link in our show notes.